Hello, hello, and welcome back to All Plotted Out, a My Little Pony Friendship is Magic podcast, where we've been gradually working our way through the later seasons of the show, episode by episode, because I feel they deserve it. We finally reached season seven, and today we'll be covering the first two episodes, Celestial Guidance and All Bottled Up both of which were written by new script editors Joanna Lewis and Christine Sonko. While not technically a two-parter, in fact this is the only season of the show that doesn't have a two-parter opening it, both episodes were aired after each other on April the 15th, 2017. Now I gave a loose show-based introduction to season 7 at the end of my To Wear and Back Again episode, So I don't think beyond addressing the new script editors, there's too much to say. The directors don't change. All of these episodes are directed by Denny Liu and Tim Stubbe, at least until episode eight, when the direction team is Denny Liu and Mike Meyer, no relation, for the rest of the season. Let's get into our first episode, Celestial Advice by Lewis and Sonko. It conjures up a 7.8 8 aggregated score on IMDb, which is pretty solid, and uh, a fair bit higher than the crystalline, the season 6 opener. The IMDb synopsis reads, Twilight Sparkle agonises over Starlight Glimmer's future, so she receives some helpful advice from her mentor, Princess Celestia. Remarkably, this is one of my largest note sets that I've produced so far. When I'm doing these episodes, as I'm watching them, I'm stopping the show, and putting notes uh, into my handy-dandy colour note app. There's a lot going on here. And this is something I will address more when we come to the final rating, I think. But let's start from the start with the cold open, which I feel does illustrate why Lewis and Sonko might have been picked as the script editors for most of season seven. I remember during my uh, review of Top Bolt commenting on how well they disguise exposition, how well they can add a comic element to it, or simply have it delivered in a way that you don't notice. This is a skill that a fair few of the other writers don't quite seem to have, and their ability to transform perhaps the clunkier, more necessary parts of traditional plot development is, I think, a real skill that probably put them in good stead as sort of overseers of other people's scripts and stories. Now, how well that relationship actually worked remains to be seen. But here, out the gate, we have about four different exposition dumps just in the introduction. There's a recap of what happened at the end of season six with Starlight and the other outcasts defeating Queen Chrysalis and redeeming the Changelings. We have what is to be happening in the episode, which is there's going to be an awards ceremony for these ponies. Interesting way to start the series, really, isn't it? We also have the exposition of what Twilight is planning to give Starlight as a gift. And then, arguably, you could say there's a fourth bit, which is who's going to be setting up the party in case you needed to be told. (laughs) Now, rather like the rest of this episode, this is potentially really scripty. 
really sort of talky. But Lewis and Sonko make this opening surprisingly visual, surprisingly engaging, and, as mentioned, do transform these dumps of info into character and comedy moments. The best example of this being Spike using the exposition dump about season six as a distraction. You even have overtly Starlight saying, I I know this, I was there. But it turns out that Spike is deliberately padding out a lot of information. So Twilight can do her illicit actions in Starlight's bedroom behind her. Lovely framed scene bringing us on to another reason why these exposition dumps are so well handled. The framing of them, the, the visual aspect, the sense of movement, it's constantly a, a sort of a pleasing distraction for the eye. Whereas in some episodes, you'll simply have two characters talking to each other in an environment and pretending they have an emotional stake in whatever is being imparted. I'm reminded particularly of the slightly clunky exposition at the beginning of Pony Point of View. We start the episode proper with the awards ceremony for the end of season six, which does seem really odd. And this, in its own quietness, I suppose, is one of the boldest season openers. And it should not be overlooked just how much is being dealt with in terms of character and role here. It's dense. It also has a lot of production value, a lot of different, not only sets and characters and set pieces being used, often figuratively, but also the cast is huge. We have the entire good guy roster from To Where and Back Again. So as well as Starlight, we've got Thorax, Discord and Trixie with speaking roles. We also have speaking appearances by Princess Ember, Garble, Sunburst... I'm glad they, they don't seem to be wanting to throw him away because he was underutilised in season six and I think he's a great character and a really good foil for Starlight in terms of character development. And a lot of the main cast have at least a few speaking lines as well, even though this is a Twilight, Starlight, Spike and Celestia episode at its heart. Uh, the absence of Discord from that description does bring up an issue with the episode that I will get out of the way right now. I'm not sure why Discord is in this episode. I wondered whether to begin with he was uh, sort of stirring Twilight's anxiety about her decision as a kind of cue, disguised benevolence thing. I mean, that's a fairly apt comparison to make. I think you'll agree. Discord was transparently based on cue and uh, is voiced by the same character and often performs the same sort of function. So I was wondering if Discord was doing a sort of cue-who thing, where he is forcing Twilight to question her own complacency, to actually check her own confidence, to make sure she is prepared. I mean, he doesn't send her off to fight the Borg and have all of her friends massacred, at least the ones without names, but he does cause a good deal of trouble. And I couldn't quite remember how that subplot panned out. So I was kind of wondering, oh, well, well, maybe this is Discord sort of looking out for her in his own chaotic way. But then it comes to episode's end and it turns out he's just been doing it because he's Discord. Uh, and his reason, or the reason he gives, doesn't make any sense. It seems he wanted Starlight to be his roomie. 
in the chaos dimension. I mean, I, I guess I can see why Discord would see some potential for mischief-making, given Starlight's past, given her magical abilities, and given her tendency for sort of rash action. But this is conjecture. And add to that some of Discord's less memorable props and set pieces. When he says he's being nosy, he puts on like a a cheap joke shop disguised nose moustache and, and glasses clip on. It's like, oh, has there been a budget cut in the chaos dimension? I'm not sure. It's not the best use of Discord in this app. But he's not a major part. He just sort of incites Twilight to panic. Which I suppose serves some function, but I do feel she probably could have managed that herself. Maybe it was felt that, by this point, as is illustrated earlier in the episode, Twilight has subtly matured to the point where she won't just freak out about any decision-making or responsibility. And so she has to have this panic stirred in her deliberately by an outside source. It is also true that Discord does raise directly the possibility of Twilight having to send Starlight away. Which brings me to a second slight issue, which doesn't really matter by episode's end, I confess. Twilight's assumption, which isn't really questioned by Celestia, that she might have to send Starlight away, just like Celestia sent Twilight away at the beginning of season one. That makes no sense, because the context and purpose is completely different. At the beginning of season one, Twilight wasn't making friends. She was becoming more insular and isolated. So sending her off to Ponyville was like a last resort. I mean, this is actually borne out at the end by Celestia's speech, but we'll get to that. Where the actual real analogue to Twilight's Ponyville move is basically when Starlight herself was converted and then turned to, that sounds very cultish, uh, was sort of redeemed and then moved to Ponyville. She has made friends already. She, she is already in some ways beyond where Twilight was at that time. And I think it is right that for the rest of the episode, Twilight's focus is on where can Starlight be useful having learnt the lessons that she has this season. Well, last season, but you, you understand my confusion. When I was re-watching this, I originally was going to raise more of an issue about how distant Celestia seems from Twilight for a lot of the episode. Now, Twilight is obviously in distress, she's obviously jumping to some extreme conclusions. Celestia is there throughout this, but she doesn't check any of them. She leaves it very open. It's really Spike... Uh, as his role has naturally developed. Who is the voice of reality to cut through and say, snap out of it? I don't think that's very probable, Twilight. But as it transpires, it kind of turns out that through watching Twilight's freaking out about all of the, the possibilities of sending Starlight to various different places and what might come unstuck in those scenarios, Celestia is actually working some stuff out herself. When she suddenly bursts into laughter after one of uh, Twilight's flights of anxiety halfway through the episode, it's, it's almost like she's reached her own epiphany. I, I thought it was, it was going to be Discord in disguise, because it seems so mean. Twilight just seems really upset. It's like, are you, are you laughing at me? 
And while in some ways she is, Celestia is right to say, well, no, no, not, not exactly. I'm laughing at me because this is exactly, exactly what I went through. It's almost like it's just clicked with her. It's just sort of brought them both closer in understanding to each other. It doesn't beat you over the head, but there's an underlying message that is basically don't assume that the people who are looking out for you have got it all figured out, that they know what they're doing and that you should in their place. Because often it turns out they've been through exactly the same flights of anxiety and probably still do in comparable situations. They just had to end in a decision. It had to stop at some point. And so it is a lovely realisation. And I love the way that this dovetails Twilight and Celestia's stories and character together. When it goes back into Celestia's memories of having to send Twilight away, it's really quite touching. Beautifully visually framed as well. You sort of cross over her face as she remembers and you uh, see her on the hill looking over Ponyville, weighing up the options. Then it flashes over to her in the Cantalop Palace, marching back and forth, questioning her decisions. Again, brilliant bit of Sonko and Lewis business. If ever there is something that is transparently scripty, even though you don't notice it because of the emotions involved in the scene, she will she will point it out and actually try and incorporate these sort of fourth wall breaking plot devices into the story. So when Celestia's going off on one to herself, the two guards that are present on either side of the throne sort of look at each other and say, "Are we are we are we supposed to say something?" <laughs> Likewise, while a lot of the episode takes place in a a visual representation, almost a simulation of Twilight's thoughts about what might happen to Starlight, so uh, Spike and Celestia can actually witness her thoughts. When it comes to Celestia's remembrances, it's all in her head. And so Spike interrupts and says, this is is Twilight you're talking about, so I can't actually see what you're saying. (laughs) It also is a lovely little cherry on top of this, uh, of this emotional cake. That is a dreadful metaphor, I'm sorry. Um, I'd completely forgotten that Celestia basically reframes the whole first series and the device of having Twilight send letters, which was a contrivance, I think, to meet the educational and informative requirements of the show's first season. But here it's explained in a way that makes absolute sense from a character perspective. Celestia says, well, it's perfectly fine for you to be worried about Starlight. I was worried about you for ages. And if you're still worried, you can always make her write you letters and then winks her. I love it. Spike laughs like, oh, I get it. And Twilight just looks sort of comforted by this. She wasn't just a student to Celestia. She was more than that. She was like a daughter. And although Celestia doesn't quite say it, and it's not explicit and head-bludgeoning in the way it deals with this, but there is a mother-daughter relationship here that's quite believable and makes perfect sense given what we know about these characters. I also do appreciate the, uh, the admission of fallibility from Celestia where she says, I kept you in Cantalot longer than I should have because I knew I was going to miss you and I was worried about you. So yeah, a lot going on here. A lot. But it never quite seems rushed, although it goes at a fair whack. 
I've not even dealt with the main body of the episode yet, which is these three fantasy scenarios conjured by Twilight's mind about where she could send Starlight and what might happen. Now, in some ways, this could simply be dealt with in script. None of these things are actually happening. But having it presented visually is not only just better as a viewing experience, and not only allows for some fun interplay between characters we, we, we're not seeing, there's also the added layer of this all being from Twilight's perspective. <laughs> so it's all a little bit warped. So it ends up in its retelling being as much about Twilight as anyone else. Oh, well, I mean, theoretically, I admit that the, the Dragon Kingdom bit is, is mostly done for laughs. From the predator-inspired hoof bump to the ridiculous over-the-top dude bro language. I mean, it is kind of something that I can see someone as adorably nerdy as Twilight conjuring about an idea of two characters in Starlight and Ember that she probably thinks are slightly cooler than she is. Though her reasoning for sending Starlight there, oh, there's loads of cool stuff there, is a bit weird. The other two, I think, are really far more logical as choices. Uh, the Changeling Hive, to send a new friendship ambassador, effectively, as, as, uh, as Starlight would be, who has a real connection with the place and also is somewhat revered already. There's an expectation that she will impart knowledge, I think. And uh, the changelings, certainly from this episode, seem keen to learn more about the pony, or at least the friendly way of doing things. So that makes sense, as perhaps even more so, does the idea that she can go and continue her magic studies with Sunburst, because, yeah, they would be great allies in this, and they certainly would spur each other on to, to greater magical endeavours. Uh, even before she discovered more about interpersonal relationships and leadership skills, Starlight was always shown to be exceptional at magic. Almost dangerously so, which is why it actually makes logical sense for Twilight to think it might go too far. That they might get so involved with making bigger and more elaborate spells that it becomes dangerous. That could happen with the best of intentions. And it's certainly true to Starlight's previous form, even though it is a worst-case scenario. And again, it isn't actually crazy to think that a changeling imposter could bring down the whole situation in the changeling hive and turn everyone against Starlight. In his own way, Thorax was an imposter, albeit on their side, and he brought down the changeling hive from inside. And also, as would be proven further down the line, there are holdouts from this new way of thinking in the Hive. So while Twilight's being overprotective, as Celestia also knows she was, there is reason behind these deductions. This sense of almost needing to control, in a, in a loving way, Starlight, and by extension Celestia having a hold over Twilight, is something that is returned to later in the episode, when Starlight and Twilight embrace, and Twilight says, I don't know what's coming next for you, but I promise I'll always be there for you. And it is her accepting that she will have to live with the possibilities of Starlight getting into trouble, 
or being out of her reach for long periods of time. It's just the way these things have to go in order for ponies to develop. But it also isn't played in a really trite, I've made my decision now and I'm grown up way. Because Starlight, who is evidently still a little unsure of herself, that's not gone away, just sort of breaks down and says, I'm not ready to leave. And Twilight's like, oh, thank goodness, I'm not ready for you to leave either. (laughs) But it is just an acknowledgement that Twilight was prepared, though it would break her heart, to let Starlight go if it's what Starlight felt was best for her. It's a really lovely, subtle acknowledgement of the the roles of Celestia and Spike throughout this entire show so far when Starlight responds to her sudden shock graduation at the end of the episode by saying, not that I'm not grateful, but are you sure about this? Celestia and Spike in unison just look back over their shoulders with with knowing smiles. They may not have the maturity and experience of Celestia, but in terms of this relationship of knowing these ponies and how to look out for them, Spike is a guardian in his own way. And him and Celestia have in some ways been a tag team. He has helped her through the roughest parts of what Celestia effectively has demanded of Twilight. It does open up the possibility that Twilight having Spike as a companion wasn't simple happenstance that Celestia knew that he would be good for her. Spike's ability to read Twilight's behaviour is visually illustrated by his counting down his fingers to one of her what-if moments in this episode. Like, let's get this part over with. Three, two, one, yeah. Stray observations. I like how the medal presentations at the beginning of the episode represent the characters quite well. Thorax is nicely awkward. I mean, he's not even used to his increased stature yet. And so Celestia's struggling to put the medal over his antlers. It sort of, it suits the awkwardness of this situation quite well. And likewise, Discord, instead of having it put around his neck or unclasping it, if that's a possibility, and putting it around, he removes his head, then puts it on the stub, then puts his head back on, of course. I really like how the the reception is, is, is handled at the beginning. There's a real sense of life of lots of different groups having interactions and talking to each other. And particularly good is the opportunity this allows for a bit of growth regarding the new changeling hive. Because we get these really eager changelings and you finally get to see what their perspective is of Chrysalis's downfall, which nicely complements the season six finale. Uh, I don't think any of this stuff could have been put in without that episode becoming overstuffed or rushed. So it's nice that it's dealt with here. And it's nice to hear one of them say, no one's ever stood up to Chrysalis like that with real kind of awe in their eyes. And it does add credence to why a lot of the changelings chose to convert so quickly at the end of the last season. They were afraid of Chrysalis. They didn't love Chrysalis. They just couldn't get out from under her shadow and thought they needed her. Perhaps they didn't like how it was run either. I also like the uh, the implied conversation, the table that Rarity and Applejack are sharing with a couple of uh, changeling ex-drones. 
I mean, this is in part, I think, looking at it, because Tabitha St. Germain obviously was not available for the show, so Rarity doesn't actually have any lines here. But uh, Lewis and Sonko actually really nicely work this into a comedic exchange by having our exposure to that conversation open with uh, one of the changelings saying, so you can't have friendship without makeovers? And Applejack saying, "Uh, well, not exactly. And you know exactly how that conversation has gone, being that rarity is present. This episode also introduces something of a running gag involving the dragons, including Ember, that they can't really tell ponies or their names apart, because to them, they're all just sort of brightly coloured, cheerful quadrupeds with sort of interchangeable twinkly names. So even though it's Twilight's fantasy, having Garble completely be unable to remember or comprehend what Starlight Glimmer's name is, in what seems to be a very genuine misunderstanding, Star is is very funny. And, And I do like the fact that this does return later in this season. Again. The dragons don't get defanged because of their slight change in relationship with the ponies. And I think that is important when introducing other species in this show. That all of their intrinsic characteristics remain. It's just the way they interact with others might shift. Also, nice little acknowledgement of the Celestia nose expression, where it turns out that Celestia has never actually been aware of this for more than a thousand years, and Twilight has just accidentally, awkwardly broken this to her by saying, Celestia knows where. As mentioned, there is a lot going on here, on a lot of different levels, and it it manages to be really well balanced on the whole. Just be honest with them. I'm sure they'll understand where you're coming from. So, yeah. I love this episode. I think it's a really, really good one that fully illustrates that, in theory at least, Lewis and Sonko are great picks for script editors. I mean, my only reservation about this episode is the Discord aspect, which isn't great. But outside that, I I think it's a great episode. Although, as I think I implied when I was introducing this episode, scoring it might prove an issue. So while I, as a long-time viewer of the show, think this is an excellent episode that really well integrates itself into the larger show, I'm not 100% sure. In fact, I don't think I'm even 50% sure of how this episode would be received by either newcomers or the fundamental core audience of the show. Now, while that had unavoidably diversified by this point, there was a definite acknowledgement that this wasn't just going to be watched by uh, young kids. Nonetheless, that was the main Hasbro target demographic, and so cannot be ignored. And uh, because there's so much in this episode that's relying on character arcs and... uh, references even going back to season one with the the letter writing i'm not sure that the importance of a lot of this stuff will actually hit home for people who aren't too familiar with the context and i'm also not sure with younger kids picking this up at random that it's going to be that entertaining it's i mean it's certainly colorful there's a lot 
visually happening, even though a lot of it is effectively a discussion, <laughs> this episode, it could theoretically have all taken place in Twilight's head. I'm not sure. If you are under 10, say, and you've been listening to this podcast and have sat through me prattling on about this show, A, I want to hand it to you for your attention span. Well done. And B, I know maybe, maybe, I'm, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe kids will be able to pick up on all this stuff. And it is uh, an edifying and enjoyable episode. But as I feel that the majority of people who are going to be listening to this podcast are going to be adults, just because of the nature of the podcast, go, I'm, I'm inclined to rate it from that perspective. Effectively, from my perspective. It's my show, after all, so there. This is a really impressive episode. Gonna give this a nine. Great start. It's not over yet. Right. As for viewers at the time, straight on to All Bottled Up, also by Lewis and Sonko. Strange having these programmed as if they were a a two-parter. It's quite low-key, this one, and it doesn't exactly have a huge amount of narrative connection to the previous one. Although it does have a significant amount of thematic and character connection, I would argue. It gets a solid, if not exactly laudatory, 7.6 aggregate off IMDb. And the synopsis there reads, Starlight loses Twilight's friendship map while the main six are on a friendship retreat. What's a friendship retreat, you may ask? Uh, Starlight and Trixie ask exactly the same question. Well, it illustrates a lot of the same tight script craft as the first episode. This is a far less complicated, dense episode, and it's probably all the better for it. It has a big, clear, clean, really good message, I think, sort of harking back to the really solid, useful messages that can be carried into adulthood that uh, that I was so fond of in season one, and that it has that really solid sort of wholesome underpinning I think is quite important because this is an episode that rings a lot of humour from the comparison between (laughs) how Trixie and Starlight approach friendship and how at least it might appear that the main six approach it. So in some ways it does, I feel, draw into stark contrast. The slight change in, in feel and approach of the later seasons, but I feel I'm getting ahead of myself here, so... Keeping it quite simple, Starlight and Trixie are left running the castle, basically, and Trixie's wanting to improve her magic, getting a bit over-enthusiastic, a bit cocky, <gasps> surely not, and ends up losing the centrepiece of the of the throne room, the, the cutie map table. <laughs> and because she's basically beamed it out with her horn and is unfamiliar with the spell, she can't remember where she beamed it to. A lot of this time she's acting like a, an irresponsible jerk, really. And Starlight is trying not to lose her cool with some very abrasive behaviour. As a result, as the, uh, the title might indicate, Starlight is literally bottling up all of this negative energy. Lewis and Sonko realise that in the past, Starlight's magic, particularly Starlight's, is a sort of lightning rod for her emotions perhaps best illustrated 
in the season six finale where feeling overwhelmed she literally causes an explosion that fires off the source of her discomfort in in different directions so when she explains to Trixie at the beginning of the episode um my magic is very much tied to my feelings it not only seems apt to previous episodes not only seems apt to her character, but it also explains the main danger of this episode. Which is less that Trixie is being abrasive, which she really is. Uh, Kathleen Barr really <laughs> plays up the spiky, disagreeable elements of Trixie here. Because there's so much potential for that with her, without ever breaking character. She's still arrogant and selfish. And pleasingly, this <laughs> this never quite goes, really. Uh, and I do like that. But yeah, the main danger is actually Starlight not expressing her increasing frustration with this stuff. Bottling it up so it actually becomes dangerous. It becomes this cloud of malevolent magic because it is just storing and welling. There is a really good sense of escalation to this. Because the story is a, a little simpler and more streamlined than the first episode, which had to balance a lot. You do get an idea of this being a gradual build-up to a, a breaking point for Starlight. Now, for, for an episode two, as I implied earlier on, this is, this is really quite sort of slice of lifey, And that's not necessarily a bad thing. I don't know whether Lewis and Sonko were deliberately wanting to move away from the narrative arc-based stuff, whether they just felt more comfortable with the slice-of-life stuff, I don't know. Um, but I do like the fact that they experimented this time with character revelations or working out old issues with characters rather than setting out the stall for some big season-long threat. I don't know, but in my recollection there perhaps seems to be a bit of a course correction, if a correction is needed with a, uh, an attempted arc later in the season, uh, perhaps unsuccessfully, we will come to that. Whether that is related to the return of Josh Haber in a script editing context, or whether it's coincidental, I don't know. Nonetheless, the two do coincide, it would seem. Now, if it were just this uh, plot line that was focused on, the Trixie and Starlight scenes in this, I mean, it would, it would work. It would be comparable in some ways to something like No Second Prances, to which this episode directly alludes, but perhaps a little more low-key than that. However, Lewis and Sonko lean into the comedic contrast here between a subplot, quote-unquote, involving the main six, which is purely there, I think, to enhance the, the Trixie and Starlight one. The two narratives have nothing to do with each other. Uh, the main six go on this friendship retreat or friendship escape, which met the uh, mid to late 2010s legal requirement to have one episode in your season that was about an escape room. And that, that was for any show. It was one of the first uh, laws that Trump passed, actually. Of course, there was the escape room referendum in the UK, which also... Uh, by a narrow margin, supported the incorporation of an escape room episode into every single television show. There was the campaign on the buses. Theresa May famously uh, flip-flopped on her uh, opinion about this, having been firmly against having uh, escape room episodes 
She now fully embraced the spirit of the referendum and said, yes, definitely. In fact, she went further. It's like, why not really properly date stamp these episodes? Why not have an axe-throwing episode in every single TV series? So the main six go to an escape room, and this is played off for comedy. It's like the most gratingly superficial aspects of their relationship played up for contrast. There are frequent cuts between Pinky cheerleading about, oh, our friendship saved the day, and everybody working together like some coordinated dance troupe, just cutting back through to Starlight looking dejected. Or acts of physical destruction. And they, and they deliberately have the comparison drawn more and more clearly by having lines of dialogue reflect each other in each scenario more and more directly. I mean, it reaches a, perhaps a, a silly apex with Rainbow Dash going, oh, nuts. And Bolt Biceps throwing the cinnamon nut stand at Trixie. Ah, nuts. Oh, dear. Anyway, there's a nice little gag as well about the, the friendship song sung by the main six, which is all about how great they work together, how they can defeat anything, actually making them lose against the Griffins' high score by two seconds <laughs> because they haven't actually finished the room. They get uh, waylaid by a song. I mean, the song, lyrically at least, borders on self-parody, uh, deliberately, Perhaps almost too far in a sense that it undermines some of the, the more nuanced aspects of the main six's relationship. But, you know, it's a fun song. Uh, even if I, it's a bit of a spoilt criticism, this, I'll admit. The animation is reused for the second verse and chorus, um, which doesn't help. It sort of makes the song seem even more shallow. I don't know if that was the intention. Just because it's very, very rare, um, I realise, that in these songs, animation or motifs are reused. I've mentioned before that having Flash be your medium gives a lot of opportunity for reuse of assets and expressions that I think the show is far less willing to indulge in than many other shows of its kind. They, they always want to push the barrier to create new things. So almost they're putting all of the effort of a hand-drawn animated show using a far more exploitable digital medium. Anyway, the main six plot is silly, and it knows it is. It's a funny episode, and it just nicely ramps up that comedy. Compare the escalation of threat and humour here to an episode like 28 Pranks Later, which just feels repetitive in its one-note gagginess, and I think you become aware how much better written an episode like this is. Because in some ways it is a simple one-joke premise. It's built on a pun, all bottled up. But not only does it have a little bit more to say... Lewis and Sonko know how to structure a story around it and know how to draw character beats from that. I mean, perhaps the dovetailing at the end is a little bit neat, but Lewis and Sonko are careful not to make the resolution between Trixie and Starlight too clean. Starlight is about to apologise for what she's done, 
until she realises that Trixie had a big hand in what's happening, even if indirectly. And so I do love the turnaround where she looks down and says, I'm really... And then looks up at Trixie and says, mad at you for A, B, C and D. And Trixie is uh, taken aback by this. She, she didn't know. And she does apologise. And Starlight does concede that it's like, well, I grant you, how would you know? I didn't raise any issue with these at the time. And so it just comes back to the importance of communication. And that any relationship worth its salt, as Trixie says, is stronger than a few angry words. Trixie also indicates that she has no intention of not causing trouble going forward. Starlight, probably drawing off her own experiences, says, you've got to be more careful with your magic. Don't, you know, stop trying this crazy stuff without thinking about it. And Trixie just says, no. <laughs> That's, it's fun. And the two have a bit of a giggle uh, about that. Which is nice. Always a bit of added arc-based value with Lewis and Sonko. The table with the cutie map on it, turns out in the end to be at the spa. And Trixie remembers why she beamed it there. And it's because she was thinking about their relationship and she remembered that the first time the two of them ever met was at the spa, which is really cute. As with the last episode, Lewis and Sonko have illustrated how you can tie these stories back to earlier ones, not only in a a way that makes narrative sense and honours the work of past writers for the show and the established law of the show, for whatever that's worth to you, but also makes emotional sense. It actually adds another dimension to a piece of narrative information. Stray observations. Spike, again, is a background legend. They, they have his character nailed now. And he acts as a sort of bridging point between the main six and this this new circle that's developing. But some of Spike's background business really adds depth to this episode. There's a lovely visual gag. Uh, One of my favourites, I think, in the show that doesn't have attention drawn to it. But in the cold open, Trixie goes a bit nuts, forgive the pun, turning everything into teacups. You know, everything is this same pink teacup. Starlight tells her to imagine a specific design in her head so she can make the transformation spell work. (laughs) Later in the episode, in an unrelated scene, I do love the amount of time that's passed. You see uh, Spike in his marigolds doing the washing up, as Spike would. And there is now (laughs) this mound of pink cups that he now has to work his way through because most of the crockery in the castle has now been replaced and he's just dutifully working his way through them in the sink. (laughs) Also going to give kudos here to the depiction of Trixie, not just in terms of Kathleen Barr's performance, which is fantastic. She gives such character to it. I love her very, She's got such a distinctive, uh, sort of a thick voice. There's a sort of phlegmatic character to it that's really... Uh, it, makes, it makes it quite a unique presence and really suits her character. But also in the way her upsetting and frustrating character beats are portrayed. It's never malicious. 
And some of the things she says, you can fully understand why Starlight is getting wound up by them. But at the same time, it's through ignorance and insensitivity rather than deliberate malice. Emblematic of this is her calling Starlight Mini Twilight. That in some ways could be considered a compliment and probably is in Trixie's mind. But it is insensitive to Starlight and Twilight's relationship. And it is demeaning as well. Uh, They seem to just know the point to cut off before Trixie becomes genuinely unpleasant. She's not actually prickly. She just doesn't really have that filter or self-checking. Just be honest with them. I'm sure they'll understand where you're coming from. So, yeah... This is another really good episode, I think. Far quieter than one might expect from this point in a season, perhaps. But it is a really good character-based story in its own right. Well, I feel, as mentioned, that the self-parody of the main six plotline, while it works really well in enhancing the comedy of the the main storyline, is perhaps a little unfair on on the work that had been done to to build the main six in a way that felt believable in the earlier seasons. They didn't always get along, these characters. And it perhaps rather too brutally draws a contrast between the slightly more down-to-earth character conflicts uh, of later seasons with perhaps the slightly more light-hearted, softer interactions of of the main six earlier on, it very importantly brings it back round at the end with that really solid message, which draws the character of the episode in a very convincing way right back to the origins of the show. Messages are still important in this show, even if they're not uh, directly restated in the same way at episodes close as they were in the in the first season and even the second to a less successful degree, I feel. And it does remind you that this is the same show, but it has organically grown, organically changed. And a lot of the changes in tone and emphasis, not only have they been sufficiently slowly cultivated as to be unobtrusive while you're watching the show, They also are essential for the longevity of the show and the success of the last few seasons. Which is, to bring it full circle back to the start of this podcast and the point behind it, is really what I'm trying to convey here. The later seasons are great in their own slightly different take. And it is essential that they did have a slightly different take. And they did mix things up. I've said it before and I'll say it again. You can argue about the the narrative credibility of some of the... um, turns that are taken with characters from Twilight's wings through to the school introduction in season eight and the role changes, but these do play an invaluable role in sustaining the show, keeping things fresh, having fresh challenges for all of the characters. So I don't really care that much about what causes the change. It doesn't matter to me that much. It's what they do with it. And I honestly think that as clumsy, perhaps, as its introduction was in season three, that Twilight's princesshood really did a lot for the character. And I could say the same about the 
the CMC is getting their cutie mark. Some of the best CMC episodes have been after that and have dealt very explicitly with where they go next, what they do now, what their role is now that they have superficially found it. But yeah, in my notes, returning fleetingly to the episode at hand, I was going to give this an 8.5. Perhaps because it was slightly low-key, perhaps because of the slightly deflating attitude it has towards the earlier seasons. But there's really, there's really not much wrong with it as an episode itself. And it's a really successful combination of storytelling and the imparting of a really useful message that is as good for kids as it is for adults. Perhaps even more so for adults. So yeah, you know what? I'm going to go out on a limb here and I'm going to give this another nine. Because there's, there's, there's such a lot to celebrate here. Got any problems, troubles, conundrums or any other sort of issues, major or minor, that I as a good friend could help you solve? Right, well, I hope you enjoyed my waxing lyrical about the first couple of episodes of Season 7. Because, um, not gonna lie, I've not seen the next few episodes in a while. But looking at them, I think there is a rough patch incoming. Now, whether my reactions to that might make these podcasts less or more entertaining is open to conjecture. I just wish... There weren't so many problematic episodes packed back to back. I think the next couple of podcast episodes are going to be um, choppier, <laughs> should I say? I hope I'm wrong. I hope I hope I have a new appreciation for a uh, a flurry heart centric episode written by a a, a one shot writer for the show. Um. <laughs> Anyway, if you want to contact me about the podcast or pony in general, the email is allplottedout at outlook.com, all lowercase, all one word, allplottedout at outlook.com, or you can reach us on the Facebook page at allplottedout, which is at the moment just a kind of picture gallery. So if you want some entertaining stills from each of of the episodes we've covered so far, that's cool. But uh, at the moment, it's not exactly a hive of activity. Maybe I should start saying more controversial things to end the show. Okay, I'm going to leave you with a hot take. Uh, Season three is better than season two. How'd you like that? Eh? You mad? (laughs) As they... As they used to say back when, uh, back when the internet ran on a series of valves and magnetic tape machines, has has that has that rustled your jimmies sufficiently? And I mean all of them. I mean Cagney, Stewart, Hill with, with his big old chin, Jam with his new jack swing, um. Mac, when's he coming back? Nick Cricket, with his... Maybe the later books are slightly more realistic than I gave them credit for. 